This episode is brought to you in part by Regent College, Vancouver, Canada. Experience God's call to a life more abundant with our one to two week summer courses. Sign up today at rgnt.net slash summer. This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmond.edu. This episode contains discussion of persecution. This may not be a good one for the kids. But don't worry, though, we're almost out of the woods. We won't get graphic, but it's worth being prepared. And also, I have to apologize, I have a bit of a head cold, so this may sound a little different from the other episodes. They called a conference. The conference was for the district party in Moscow province. It was a decent-sized hall, occupied by people who belonged to the Communist Party, leaders who were to guide their people through the turbulent Soviet era, where people were arrested and sent away, or shot, for not following directions, for thinking differently, or for knowing someone who thought differently. At the end, someone from the front of the hall decided to pay tribute to Comrade Stalin, their strong leader who killed anyone who disagreed with him, who would stop at nothing to make the Marxist dream a reality. Everyone clapped, and that was expected. It was assumed that you were going to stand and you would clap at the sound of Stalin's name. Perhaps there were whistles, shouts, some feet stamped, Maybe some brotherly pats on the back or big patriotic smiles. A few wet eyes. All the while, they kept clapping. The clapping persisted. One minute, two minutes, then three, with no signs of stopping. Stopping took just one courageous person to start the chain of events. You know, a shuffle, a clearing of the throat while looking at one's seat. Perhaps they'd sit down, gather their things. That would be enough to signal it was time to stop clapping. But to do so was to assume that Stalin didn't deserve five minutes of applause at a meeting that he did not attend. That was dangerous. Who would dare to be so disloyal. So they clapped for eight minutes, nine minutes, and then ten. Imagine ten minutes of clapping, of pretending to smile, the pain in your feet, your palms, your face. All the while, you had to keep applauding. Flinching meant prison. These men wanted to see their homes that night, kiss their wives, sleep in their own beds. Stopping, even for a moment, put all of that in jeopardy. At 11 minutes, a man at the front of the room had the audacity to sit, so everybody else could sit down. Now that one person had stopped, everybody else could. No doubt, they were relieved at the chance to grab their things and pretend that nothing, nothing, had been out of the ordinary at all. The story does not end there for the manager of the paper factory. That night, he was arrested. 
perhaps in the same way that so many others were in that era. I knock on the door well after midnight, lying in bed, hoping that that sound had been in your dreams, but knowing that it hadn't. They'd finally come for you. They'd drag you away, lock you in a cell, or set you to hard labor, your kids looking on from a distance, your wife unsure of whatever happened to you. According to the account, the paper mill manager was sentenced to ten years hard labor. Their parting words as they sent him to prison, don't ever be the first to stop applauding. You're listening to the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. I'm Chris Starin, and this is Truce. The story, it's said to be a true story, is from a book called The Gulag Archipelago by Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the man who gathered hundreds of stories about life in the Gulag. It's both comic and tragic to think of all those men standing on their feet for 11 straight minutes, applauding someone who was not there, but too afraid to stop, knowing that they could be sent away if they did. It's indicative of life in the Soviet Union, scary and sometimes absurd. The government was paranoid, thinking that anyone and everyone could be a spy, could be plotting evil against the regime. Anyone suspected of anything had to be sent away from society. My fear is, though, that we too often get caught up in the dark comedy of these moments and miss their tragedy. I imagine some of us think that if we were there, none of this would have happened. We would have sat down. It would have been fine. We might say if someone tried to come after me, I'd protect my family with a gun. I'd find a way to leave the country. I'd like to caution against those false notions of bravery. The Soviet Union, just during the reign of Stalin, killed 20 to 25 million of its own people. Many more if you count those under other administrations. In future episodes, we're going to talk about how the United States and the U.S. Christian Church reacted to the Soviet Union. Those reactions will make no sense unless we suppress our desire to write this period off as a whimsical fluke. We need to see it for what it was, one of the greatest tragedies in human history. Thankfully, I have some help in reporting this story. Yes, I'm Felix Corley. I'm editor of Forum 18 News Service. This is an online news agency covering freedom of religion or belief issues for people of all faiths or people of no faith indeed. You can read their news for free on forum18.org. They cover Central Asia, Russia, Ukraine, Tajikistan, Belarus, and the South Caucasus. Places that you and I might not even be able to find on a map. Places we never get news from here in the States. Where p- people often suffer from their, uh, from government restrictions on what they're able to do in the area of freedom of religion or belief, not just meeting for worship, but talking to other people about their faith. These are places where you can't give away or sell religious materials, books, Bibles, or crosses. For today, we're going to focus on the Soviet Union as it was during communism. Russia, as we've seen, was already a place of some religious persecution during the era of the Tsars. There were several programs aimed at Jewish people, and persecutions of small Protestant sects, and Islam was also targeted. And then under the Soviets, again, they they immediately started cracking down, on, particularly on 
the organized religious communities. Like the Orthodox Church, whose home was in Moscow. Organized churches are easier to target because they have buildings, staff, and a members list. The same was true for Catholic and Lutheran churches. Vladimir Lenin came to power in 1917. That same year and into the next, he ordered that anyone who was not strictly of his political party be sentenced to hard labor or death. He called his opponents insects, meaning homeowners, church leaders, priests, choir members, anarchists, intellectuals, and nuns, anyone who refused to sign a loyalty pledge. Lenin did away with due process. Now, due process, that's one of those big concepts. Let's say if you get arrested in the United States today, you are arrested by a police officer. Then a separate judge gives you the sentence, and that sentence is carried out by different people. There is a process that you go through with more than one step. Under Lenin, the same people handled arrests, investigations, prosecutions, and trials. Often, all at the same time. This made for speedier trials, but left no accountability. The person who arrested you didn't have to prove why they did it. And there was no way to appeal if you thought you'd been wrongfully accused. In 1918, Lenin's people ransacked churches and threw out religious relics. They also killed those who dared to stand up to the desecration of their churches. He issued a decree in that same year that required 10 years hard labor for farmers who hid food or kept it for sale. This is all terrifying. What makes it worse in my mind is that it wasn't clear what sent you to the camps. There was no easy list of rules to follow. If someone wanted to send you away, it could be done on the basis of no evidence at all. Then Joseph Stalin came to power. The situation went from bad to worse. In reporting this story, some of the experts I spoke with were quick to mention that there was a period of reprieve under Stalin, when the government slowed their persecutions of religious people because they needed their help. Well, really, in the Second World War, they started to change their policy and allow certain faiths to function, provided they remained absolutely loyal to the government. They didn't do anything the government didn't want. They did what the government did want and that they were completely riddled with KGB agents. Let's be real. There was a reprieve. After the decree, churches could somewhat operate, but only if KGB agents were present. The KGB were the secret police. But the reprieve came much later. Let's not try to soften the blow. But they were basically sent to a place where they would have to work with very poor food, very poor living conditions. Many of them died of disease. Um, often, especially under Stalin, the families had no information about them. They were told, you know, they were sentenced with no right to correspondence, which meant their families had no idea where they were, whether they were still alive or dead. Prisoners were forced to mine coal, cut timber, work in factories. It may be helpful to think of the gulags less as prisons and more as a form of slavery. The Soviet Union had to keep up the ruse that they were as modern as any other country. They achieved that through slavery. Well, I mean, I think being sent to a gulag would obviously be for the lucky ones, because a lot of um, religious believers, or indeed anyone else, 
they were summarily ordered to be shot by a group of three people who usually met in the middle of the night. It was called a troika. It was a group of three secret police officers. They just ordered them to be shot and their property to be confiscated. So, you know, these were the sort of decisions and quite often they're taken at one o'clock in the morning, two o'clock in the morning, that type of thing. And then it says at the bottom, the sentence was carried out at such and such a time on such and such a date. Often it's the same night. Millions died of overwork, exposure, lack of food and disease. In Alexander Solzhenitsyn's book, The Gulag Archipelago, the one we opened the show with, he goes into this in great detail. He wrote about how train cars full of people were rounded up by just a few men with guns. These train cars would be loaded at a public train station where non-prisoners were going about their daily business, maybe not even knowing that the people next to them were prisoners. Solzhenitsyn asked a chilling question. Why didn't the prisoners do something? Fight back, call out, beg for help from their fellow man. Sure, there were some rebellions, but all too often, based on his hundreds of interviews with prisoners, they simply went quietly, kept their heads down, remained silent, as if this were their destiny. There's this thing they say in action movies just before the good guys storm the enemy, they can't kill us all. In many cases, there were way more prisoners being transported than guards and lots of civilians around. All of those people could have banded together to resist, but mostly they didn't. Such was the fear, the resignation under the Soviets. Solzhenitsyn recorded his own imprisonment story. Alexander was fighting in the war on the battlefield when he was pulled aside to speak to his superiors. He was being sent to a gulag because he corresponded with a friend from school. Let this illustrate the paranoia of the Soviets. He was fighting for Russia in a war, and they sent him away because of a letter. Perhaps even more striking is what happened next. The officer who escorted him away didn't know where the local prison was. Alexander gave them directions to his own prison. Do you see the fatalism there? Rather than fight or be uncooperative, he complied, leading them to his own imprisonment. Not only that, but he did it again when they reached Moscow, giving directions to yet another prison because his guards were lost. People just complied. Many of those taken away were religious. Christians were a primary target. And the logic is simple. Religious people answer to God over man. We meet in our own buildings. We attend lectures once a week. We meet in smaller groups to discuss a book that the government doesn't control. Solzhenitsyn recorded that it was legal to pray freely if God was the only person who could hear you. Praying out loud was unacceptable. Telling your kids about God was considered a political crime under Article 58-10 of the Law Code. They considered it a form of propaganda, because you were teaching your kids to obey something other than the government. What we've covered is serious stuff. Don't let the fact that it only took a few minutes to tell you this make you think it was a flash in the pan. We're talking about decades of persecution. But then after Stalin died, 
they started to reassess many of these sentences and people were freed in the uh, after Stalin died in 1953 so 54 55 56 they did release quite a lot of people. In some cases, their sentences were officially deemed to be unjust. Although, you know, if the person has already died or been shot, it was really rather, a, you know, an academic thing. You know, okay, their sentence was overturned retrospectively, but if the guy's already dead, well, you know, that doesn't change the situation. You haven't undone, undone the wrong that was committed to them. One of the hidden pieces of this story is what life was like under Nikita Khrushchev. So many of the resources stopped the discussion with Stalin. Khrushchev was no angel. As you know, Ukrainian party leader had been quite involved in the suppression of the Greek Catholic Church. The these were Ukrainians who were loyal to the Vatican and this was a you know in centuries past these greek catholics have been orthodox and then they've been converted to catholicism where they retained their their old rituals but they were subject to the pope well this church had long been a bone of contention between catholics and orthodox the orthodox really hated it they saw them as either as turncoats or as people who'd been forced to abandon their orthodoxy and subjugate themselves to the pope so you know when the soviets came in both the orthodox church and the soviet regime decided okay let's just ban the whole lot and they had to choose between joining the orthodox church or going to a gulag you know so many accounts of you know churches which had survived the war had then gradually been reopened after the war and they, they were just confiscated and blown up in in the late 50s or early 60s there was a stepping up of anti-religious propaganda often of a fairly primitive nature in newspapers on tv radio there were films made priests were encouraged to leave their orders and had to give talks about why they'd given up their faith this was not something that happened on the side or even once or twice it was systematic under the soviet union even after stalin and khrushchev the persecutions were severe and it looks like they could be heating up again. We'll continue our story after these messages. God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. Welcome back. We've spent a fair bit of time in the last few episodes talking about what life was like during the Soviet era. Really, it was unimaginable. But things didn't magically get better when the Berlin Wall came down. Felix's team keeps tabs on what happened and what is still happening. And after the end of the Soviet period, the different countries of 15 countries emerged. That's Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Belarus, Ukraine, 
Moldova, Georgia, Armenia, Azerbaijan, Turkmenistan, Tajikistan, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, and Russia. Some of them completely turned over to a democratic way of treating religious communities and people's human right to have a religious faith of their choice or no faith. Some of them completely understood that and accepted it. Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, other ones have remained very restrictive and sort of in a creeping way, so gradually reimposed the same controls we saw during the Soviet period. Control on which communities are allowed to exist, a ban on all unregistered activity, censorship of religious literature, and then raids, fines, jailings, that type of thing. You know, many of the countries, especially in Central Asia, you know, they've taken divergent paths and the ones that have got better have got a lot better over the last sort of nearly 30 years since the end of the Soviet period. But the ones that are bad have steadily got worse particularly during the 1990s and you know the soviet style controls really still continue and russia is starting their persecutions back up focused on religious groups like the jehovah's witnesses the government hasn't officially said why they do it but we do have some ideas though some of them relate to the community not sort of recognizing earthly governments, you know, not being uh, willing to fight in armies, the pacifism that they have, um, not wanting to sing the national anthem or swear oaths, that type of thing. Russia went so far as to ban their religion in 2017. One article on the website documents 32 different individuals who are on trial for participating in the Jehovah's Witness religion. The running list shows a total of 245 people facing criminal prosecution for their religious beliefs. A group of seven people reported being arrested in February of 2019 and subjected to torture, including attempted suffocation, sexual violence, electric shocks, and more. It doesn't stop with Jehovah's Witnesses. Yes, I mean, they're not the only community. I mean, there are Muslims. There's a particular group who read the works of Said Nursi, um, the Turkish uh, theologian who died in 1960, um, but his books are quite treasured by his followers and they've really been hammered in, in recent years, even before the attacks on Jehovah's Witnesses started. And, you know, many of them have been jailed. There's one who's in prison at the moment, well, several who are in prison at the moment in Russia, but one of them got an eight-year jail term. So, you know, we're really looking at quite heavy sentences and some of them have been uh, given 10-year jail terms. So, you know, we're, we're seeing a whole load of, of really heavy restrictions on that community. We get so overwhelmed with stories of persecution around the world that it's hard to process all of it. Sometimes we only want to hear stories about our people, folks who look like us or believe like we do. But these imprisonments should concern everyone. It also sends a signal to other people who are not Jehovah's Witnesses. Look, if you behave like that or if we choose at any point, we the government could go after you in exactly the same way. That creeping bias against religious people has not stopped with Muslims and Jehovah's Witnesses. Think about the modern home church movement. If you're starting a new church or you like the intimacy of a small home meeting, then you might be tempted to find the person in your group with a big living room. It looks kind of like a house, but it's functioning as a church. The Russian government gets suspicious of these kinds of gatherings. Because the house is not designated as a place of worship, 
they can shut it down. There are also anti-missionary laws that prohibit unapproved missionary activity. Well, they've interpreted, officials have interpreted that to be even a meeting in a private home where, um, you know, there may not be anyone present apart from people who are already members of that community. Therefore, who, who are you conducting missionary activity among? Because all the people are already, you know, your adherents. So there are a lot of cases where people are fined one, two, three weeks average wages for conducting missionary activity. And the same thing applies to um, people putting up adverts on their Facebook page or on other social media saying, oh, we're holding a service at this address and it's going to be at this time and, you know, anyone's welcome to come. Well, people have been punished for that kind of publicity for religious activity. But there was a recent case of a student from Zimbabwe. They put things up on their Facebook page saying about their involvement in the church and so on. Then they get punished, they get ordered deported. And there's someone who is in fact married to a Russian citizen who was ordered deported for taking part in the activities of his own church, his own congregation. So, you know, these these can be pretty serious um, punishments for people for things that you and I or anyone else might consider quite normal activity. Persecution is an interesting beast. We hear about it a lot, especially in the Christian church. There is so much talk of it that we often grow either numb to it or we live in fear. Neither is a great response. In reporting this series, I encountered a lot of indifference toward the suffering of these people. Like it was acceptable to murder them, put them through hard labor, separate families, because the country was after a golden idea. An economic model that would fix the world build equality, and anything that got in the way of that system was just collateral damage. That attitude just does not sit well with me. I talked about my concerns with Felix, and I think what he had to say was valuable. Well, perhaps if people are sympathetic to, you know, the Soviet ideology, they might they might say that, and they have said that. Um, but, you know, if you don't like or you're not interested in religion or you don't like religious people, then you might not care if they suffered. And they did suffer. And, um, you know, it just reminds you of Pastor Niemöller's um, dictums. He's talking about a famous poem written after the Holocaust by Martin Niemöller. Niemöller was part of a group of pastors in Germany before and during World War II who opposed Hitler. For that, he was thrown into a concentration camp. The poem, when translated, goes, First they came for the socialists, and I did not speak out, because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak out, because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out, because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. The words to that poem have been swapped out in recent years to reflect refugees or Muslims. Niemöller himself seems to have switched out people groups in various speeches, including Catholics and Jehovah's Witnesses. Sometimes the order of the groups was changed, but 
the sentiment is still the same. Whenever other people's human rights are affected, everyone should speak up on their behalf. You shouldn't downplay the destruction of people's human rights, whether it's happening to Uyghurs in Xinjiang, whether it's happen happening to Rohingya Muslims in, in Burma, whether it's happening to Jehovah's Witnesses in Russia. Everyone should be concerned about that. And, and religious believers and other people suffered severely under the Soviet regime. It's easy enough to watch people who are not like you being carried away. But eventually, when they come for your people, who will be there to stand up for you? Special thanks to Felix Corley and Forum18. You can read much more about their work at forum18.org. I'm also indebted to articles from The Atlantic and The Washington Post for their information about that poem. You can find links to all of my sources on the website at trucepodcast.com. When you're there, you can find links to our social media feeds. We're on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Reddit, so many places. My challenge to you this week is to follow the show on social media. When you do, you'll be able to share our posts to help other people find out about the show. Also, if you'd like to send encouragement to people who are being persecuted right now, Forum 18's website lists the address for many of the people who are being persecuted in this part of the world. There's one prisoner who was in prison in Turkmenistan a few years ago, Protestant pastor. They said they showed him the room where the letters were all piling up for him. And they said, you know, who are you? You know, all these letters keep coming for you. They wouldn't give them to him. He knew when he was there that he had not been forgotten. The Truce Podcast is listener supported. You can donate a little each month on Patreon.com to keep this thing going. And if you do, you'll gain access to some of the material that we could not include in this episode, including more from Felix Corley. God willing, we'll be back in two weeks with another look inside the Christian church. I'm Chris Steering, and this is Truce. This episode was brought to you in part by the audio adventure series, Discovery Mountain. Help your kids fall in love with the Bible. Each true-to-life adventure story will draw them closer to Jesus. Visit discoverymountain.com/ct.